Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, January 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, appointments for COVID-19 vaccinations through the health department have reached capacity following a surge in demand. Then we examine the latest effort to impeach and convict President Donald Trump and how accountability for the insurrection at the Capitol could extend to lawmakers. Plus, in our book club, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Vaccine appointments available through the state's drive through vaccine locations are full. The Mississippi Department of Health says recent changes to the state's vaccine rollout have filled all 52,000 appointments at the state's drive through vaccination sites. These changes also created technical difficulties and long wait times for residents hoping to schedule an appointment for themselves or a loved one. Dr. Mark Horn, president of the Mississippi State Medical Association, says the quick changes to vaccine availability caused a surge in demand that was difficult to accommodate. Some decisions have been made, not by the Department of Health, but by the governor in the past few days to change the strategy. So to move toward the health department uh, drive-through clinics, which have done a fantastic job. They're excellent. But they tried to ramp them up by between 200 and 400% in about 48 hours. And they had less than an hour's notice that it was going to happen. Uh, it, they, they had a plan. An announcement was made uh, by, the, by the governor, and then they were told that's what you're going to do. So I'm not dinging the the governor made a decision based on what he understood needed to be done. But that's one of the reasons you've seen some difficulty with the website. The website was not designed for the traffic that it was suddenly thrust upon it. UMC didn't know. The health department didn't know that it was going to change. That's what's happened. Uh, and uh, we're going to get there. Uh, I saw in the questions, you know, what to do. Should we go somewhere else? Uh, I know. We're going to get every dose that we've got in the state is going to get in an arm as fast as it can. That's what we're going to do. Uh, and uh, the Department of Health is, and the governor and uh, every health system that I know of, we're all dedicated to making sure that the vaccine that is allocated to Mississippi gets in arms as fast as it possibly can. We're doing that and we're committed to it. There may be some extra Doses coming, we don't know for sure. It depends on the federal government uh, and how much more they allocate to us. But the doses that we've got will be gotten out uh, as fast as they conceivably can. The 
health department is ramping up rapidly. Every dose that's given to any of our health systems will go in an arm. We'll give out as many doses as we're given. We'll, uh, uh, we just have to get the doses. Health and state officials say there are enough doses to fulfill all scheduled appointments and provide second shots for those who have already received their initial dose. The expanded eligibility meant many Mississippians who now qualify were not able to schedule an appointment during the current allocation. Dr. Horn says the more people get vaccinated, the more vaccine the states can get in the future. The state can get in the future. One of the ways to succeed in getting more is to do a really good job of getting what we have out. So the more that if we get our current doses into arms, uh, into uh, into people, that's going to make it easier for us to get more uh, on the next distribution. The federal government's goal is to get this vaccine in people. So we need to have good cooperation from the public to get all of these doses in arms as the reason I mean, I understand why uh, the decisions of the past 48 hours are made. It was an effort to do a better job, to get more out. Um, And so that's the goal is get it out so that we can get more. If we get this uh, in arms, we'll get more. Health leaders are hopeful more doses will be available by next month. Dr. Rambad Bubash, or Rubash says the companies producing the vaccine, Pfizer and Moderna, are capable of quickly producing more product once the federal government places the next order. I'm very, very optimistic that as soon as the uh, United States puts in an order for more vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna can crank them out left and right. So um, I think there's really good news on the horizon. And, and oh, by the way, now that they've expanded the indication for all healthy people above the age of 65 and people with chronic illnesses, including cancer, chronic kidney disease, COPD, the usual kind of suspects, please bear in mind that the Pfizer vaccine is indicated for 16 and up. And some of those diseases on that list include diseases that occur in children. We have kids with Down syndrome. We have kids with um, um, congenital heart conditions. We have immunocompromised kids. We certainly have sickle cell kids. So um, bear in mind that if you have patients that meet that criteria, please encourage them above the age of 16 to go forward and get the vaccine if they can. The rush for vaccinations comes as the state and the region are experiencing a post-holiday surge in cases and hospitalizations. The influx of COVID-19 patients is placing added strain on the hospital system. Dr. Horn says many hospitals are operating in crisis mode. We are seeing a tremendous surge uh, across the entire state, uh, across the entire southeastern United States, and for the most part across the entire country. Everything's not synchronized. It's not exactly the same in every area of the country, but the entire state of Mississippi and the entire southeastern United States uh, are in a pretty much a crisis mode right now. Um There are some terrible stories I can tell you about what's happening in Mississippi. I know that in our facility, we have a 13-bed ICU, and we currently have, this afternoon, I think, uh, uh, Dr. Sparks could tell me, I think we had 20 or 21, which means we had two rooms that had two patients per room. They're designed for one. We had uh, four or five patients in in the ER. We had six people holding in the ER, and that's pretty rough for a a hospital our size, about a third of our patients were COVID, a little over a third of our patients were COVID. 
And so that's what's doing happening in small places. What's happening around the state? Well, a friend of mine from uh, one of the larger hospitals in the state told me that their ER just over a week ago had 75 patients being held in the ER waiting for beds. And I made him repeat it. He said, yes, a seven and a five, 75. Now, that's stunning beyond where, I mean, it just is hard to comprehend. Uh, any physician, I, I, I've talked to physicians that are in their 80s, and none of them have ever seen anything like that. I know none of us have. Dr. Horn also says while COVID-related hospitalizations are straining resources, the normal expectations of hospitals, like treating heart attacks and other emergency issues, haven't stopped. And we talk about this in terms of COVID, like COVID is the only thing that's happening. Well, guess what? People still break hips, and Dr. Burgess has to fix them. And people fall off the ladders, and they get head injuries, and they need to go to Dr. Rubash's hospital and have a neurosurgeon see them. And people have heart attacks and they have strokes and, and everything else, all the work, the world didn't stop. The normal things didn't quit happening just because COVID came along. And so we, our hospital and our healthcare systems are designed for what we know is normal. And what we've done is we've thrown a whole additional normal on top of that and trying to shove all of that into our normal healthcare system. And it is breaking it. Coming up, we examine the latest effort to impeach and convict President Donald Trump and how accountability for the insurrection at the Capitol could extend to lawmakers. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Following a day of debate and voting on Capitol Hill, President Donald Trump became the first president to be impeached multiple times yesterday. Lawmakers voted in a bipartisan majority on a single article of impeachment, inciting insurrection. Following the violent insurrection at the Capitol last week, 10 Republicans crossed the aisle to join Democrats in placing some of the blame at the feet of the president. That group did not include Mississippi's three Republican House delegates. Matt Steffi is a professor at the Mississippi College School of Law. We spoke to him ahead of yesterday's vote on the latest effort to impeach and convict President Donald Trump and how accountability for the insurrection at the Capitol could extend to lawmakers. It's perhaps the strongest message of condemnation that the House and uh, potentially the Senate and the Congress as a whole can send about the events of last week and the president's role in it. It's the strongest, uh, it's the uh, most powerful tool in the toolbox. There are other ways, a joint resolution of, of censure, a resolution of the House, and so on, but it speaks in the loudest constitutional voice. If this passes even through the House, President Trump will be the first and only president in American history to be impeached twice. Whatever happens in the Senate, that ends up in the first page of, of any story about his presidency. But surely an impeachment uh, can't happen 
while he's still in office, so an impeachment can continue after he leaves office? Yes, there is precedent for it. And uh, and almost all scholars agree that that can go forward, which uh, could have the effect of permanently barring him from holding federal office, which would be the second reason why impeachment would be attractive to the critics of uh, his role in the uh, storming uh, and occupation uh, of the Capitol with violence last week. And if... It would only take the House to impeach him to keep him from being able to run for office? Well, probably not. It would probably also take the judgment of the Senate, which is the hard piece to obtain. It would require at least 17 senators to uh, to switch, to, to go across the aisle, which seems like a very tall order. Highly unlikely, which which makes it seem as if it's um, a statement, perhaps more than uh, the hope of an actual outcome. Well, I think there is a statement and a slim hope on the parts of those bringing it. And part of it is that you can only use the tools you have, and this is the tools that Congress has. Now tell us about the 14th Amendment. Well, that's another option that would empower Congress to, in theory, disqualify the president from holding office because of his participation in an insurrection. Uh, and that's the one where the legal wa- waters are most muddy, given its civil war roots, right, that that. Exactly what Congress can do and how is, uh, I think, uh, an even murkier area than impeachment in the 25th Amendment. But that would be based on a post-Civil War ability to disqualify those who engage in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S., uh, which, which at the time read to everybody as the Confederacy. What powers does Congress have over their colleagues who um, have been accused of participating or, or leading to this insurrection, like Senator well, Ted a, Cruz a, or Josh Hawley? Well, the, 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 the short answer is Congress has plenty of tools. The question is, do they have any willingness or desire to use them? And is it appropriate for them to do so? But the, the Constitution provides that, the, uh, that essentially gives Congress the plenary authority over the qualification and discipline of its own numbers. We're also in a position, I mean, these are uncharted waters. We have millions and millions and millions of Americans who still believe this election was stolen, although facts dispute that. That's an interesting uh, thing, I think, that scholars have discussed, too. The only reason millions of Americans believe that is a combination of a desire to believe that, just as we saw four years ago. Millions of Democrats in disbelief that President Trump legitimately uh, won the White House through the Electoral College uh, in 2016. And the Democrats' constant effort to 
undermine the legitimacy of Donald Trump's election and push back and disqualify him from office, I think made the current situation worse because it made it seem natural in a close election. It should surprise no one that an election decided by a razor-thin margin in 2016 would be a close election that could flip four years later in the middle of the worst public health crisis of our lifetime. That should surprise no one. But this deliberate misinformation campaign and lawsuits uh, uh, that are really just propaganda designed to drive the news cycle. When the Texas Attorney General and our Attorney General and others sued to upend the Pennsylvania election in the Supreme Court, they had to know that that approached a 0% chance of succeeding. They had to know that. They had to know that because they have competent lawyers working for them that say that you don't have any right to complain about what happened in in Pennsylvania and the Supreme Court isn't the forum to hear it. And the the idea that the election is, you know, marred by fraud is an idea that has been rejected on the merit. Uh, and, And so to maintain it in the face of overwhelming rejection of the argument seems deliberately to, to prey on misinformation, uh, to gin up uh, emotion, and, and, and lead us to where we were last week. And so the, uh, one of the most astonishing things was to hear Senator Ted Cruz say the reason we should have an election commission is because we have succeeded, we, the Trump supporters, in convincing millions of Americans uh, uh, to believe in false information on the basis of no evidence. It's a tautology. We should look into it because people believe it and because people believe it because we've engaged in a disinformation campaign. Uh, yeah, I would be deeply concerned, deeply concerned about widespread evidence of voter fraud. So would virtually uh, anybody uh, who studies and follows and teaches and practices in this area, there's just no evidence of it. So we have a campaign based on evidence rejected by everyone to look at it, including friends and allies, as a reason to try to halt the democratic process in its uh, in its steps uh, and use violence to do so. Which is why the bipartisan condemnation has run so deep. Interesting days ahead. Matt Steffi is a professor of law at the Mississippi College School of Law. Thank you so much, Matt, as always. It's always my pleasure, Karen. Coming up in our book club, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For this new year, let's ditch the New Year's resolutions. On average, they only last about 30 days. Instead, let's commit to learn something new each and every day right here on MPB Think Radio. From health to finance and even Fido, MPB Think Radio is your daily source for news, information, and entertainment. So let's make this a year to remember with MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A debut novel by a self-described black queer writer is garnering a lot of attention for its story of a loving relationship between two enslaved men on a plantation in Mississippi. The book is being praised for its prose. Author Robert Jones Jr. is already a well-known and respected writer and tells us about his work that precedes today's book club choice, The Prophets. Early on, I was writing mostly sociopolitical commentary. I was talking about things like race and gender and sexuality, as well as white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and the ways those things affect us as human beings, oppress us as human beings. People were seem to be drawn to that perspective, which I learned that basically at the feet of Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. I read all of their work, was inspired by the way they thought about these issues, and wanted to kind of move those perspectives into a contemporary setting and and then think about how um, the intersection, me as a black and a queer person, how that informs the way I look at the world, how that informs the way the world looks at me. It is fascinating to me, and I'm sure it will be to, to readers, that your first novel, it takes place in Mississippi, and there are two slaves, two men who have a deeply loving relationship. I'm not sure people would associate at any point slavery and a same-sex couple. What is The Prophets about? The Prophets is about Samuel and Isaiah, two enslaved young men on a plantation just outside of Vicksburg who are in love. And that love either inspires, angers, transforms all of the people around them in various ways. The Prophets also echoes back to pre-colonial Africa to look at two young men, Kosai and Alewa, who share a similar love. And there's sort of like a parallel situation going on in both of those worlds. And I'm examining in The Prophets the erasure of the black queer figure in both American history, black American history, as well as continental African history your comments about how people don't normally associate antebellum slavery and blackness and queerness is precisely the reason why I wrote this book is because when I was an undergrad, I was an Africana studies minor and read all sorts of wonderful works by black authors, none of which prior to the Harlem Renaissance dealt with blackness and queerness. And I also read some works where there were brief mentions Like in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, she talks about how a slave master rapes one of his male slaves. And in Toni Morrison's Beloved, there's a scene where her character, Paul D., is sexually assaulted by a male overseer. And I thought, okay, but what about love? And coupled with Toni Morrison's call that if you cannot find the book you wish to read, then you must write it, I said about the 14-year process, because it took me 14 years to write the prophets. Some writers are deemed good or great because they tell a good story, or others create these vivid, unique characters. Some writers are deemed good or great because of how they write their actual prose. It seems that you are one of those writers. Just from what I've read of people's reaction to this book, they compare you to Toni Morrison and to James Baldwin. That's high praise. My question is, do you spend a lot of time arranging words on the page or arranging thoughts on the page in a certain way so they read a certain way? 
first I must say the comparisons to Toni Morrison and James Baldwin are utterly flattering, but I could not touch the hem of their garments. <laughs> but I love that people have been comparing me to both of them because they are my two favorite writers on the entire planet. And yes, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to craft a sentence that conveys not only meaning, but rhythm and feeling. Toni Morrison once said, you want to make sure that the line is clean as a bone. That was the goal, was to get it distilled down to its rawest essence so that it was lovely to say out loud, lovely to the eyes to read, that it could convey some sort of tactile sense, that there's music in it. I was trying with every single sentence. I don't know if I always succeeded, but I was certainly trying. Is that perhaps why it took you so many years to finish it? Amen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, because I wanted to ensure that I was paying homage to these characters in a way that was worthy of them. And I was trying to write as, at the, my highest level of ability. And as a writer, you know that you're always better tomorrow than you are today. So you, you wrestle with yourself. You look at what you wrote yesterday and you go, oh, that's not good enough. And you spend another two hours rewriting what you wrote yesterday. Robert Jones Jr. is the author of The Prophets, and I thank you so much for being with us to talk about this book. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.